Welcome back to another episode of Bush School Uncorked. Today we are actually, maybe sadly, not at Uncorked, um, but we have found us a nice space uh, to chat today. And so today we're going to talk a little bit about democracy. We're recording this the day after the U.S. midterms and everyone was uh, participating in democracy. And so we're going to talk a little bit about that at the end of the episode today. We have an expert with us on democracy, uh, Jessica Gottlieb, and we're going to talk with her. But uh, I'm going to let her introduce herself and our other co-host is with us today and let everyone say hello. And then we'll have a nice conversation with Jessica and then shift to a broader conversation about the elections. Great. Thank you, Justin. So I'm Jessica Gottlieb. I'm an assistant professor at the Bush School in the International Affairs Department, and I've been here for about six years. What else do you want to know? I think you got here one year before me. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, we'll talk a little bit more about what your research is and what you do, but thanks for joining us today. Thanks and I'm Gregory Gauze. Greg's uh, back. The department head of My the boss. Department of International <laughs> Affairs at the Bush School of Government. Welcome back, faithful podcast listeners. Sorry we're not at, at downtown Uncorked. I know that everyone likes the, to imagine us sitting in a bar having these conversations, but it's going to be just as interesting sitting here in the Mossbacker conference room at the Bush School itself. Yeah, and we're not any shortage of interesting topics today, I don't think. That's for sure. <laughs> well, let's start with um, diving into some research on democracy. There's uh, thought about it different ways to frame this, but I think we'll just dive back, dive into what Jessica does. So maybe we could start by telling us a little bit about what type of work you do on democracy, how you approach it as a question. And then I want to talk about a couple of your recent works in, uh, in the international context, and then some, some very recent work you've done that I, I think is really fascinating. Sure. So um, my, the main question that, that, fascinates me that that gets me up in the morning is how democracy works or uh, as it were doesn't work in um, low-income country settings so uh, I think we know more at least about how democracy works in really old countries really old democracies like our own and like those in Western Europe uh, but we know a lot less about how democracy is going to go in places that have very recently democratized. So a lot of the countries that I focus on are in um, Africa, and Francophone Africa in particular, because I happen to speak French, and so that's my comparative advantage. There happens to be a lot less research on those countries because of the language barrier. Um, but also those are some of the, um, some of the democracies, um, prominent democracies on the African continent. So um, I, I've taken my, my research questions there. And you know, people often ask me, why do you study Africa when you could be studying democracy at home? And you know, at least when I started studying uh, the, these questions, I, I found them to be a lot more interesting in Africa where things were moving quickly and it felt like there was a lot more room for change. And also the research questions were much bigger. People have been studying American democracy for so long that it, that it felt like some of the questions were getting quite um, minute and um, less important. However, that is now all changing. <laughs> uh, given the big uh, transitions and yeah. um, turbulence, chaos that we've seen in our own democratic system, and actually, for the first time, I've been able to take lessons from what I've learned in the African context back to the American context. So I'll start out by talking about some of the research I've done overseas. But then, as you mentioned, we'll get to some of the some of how that connects back to how I've been thinking about democracy in, in my own country. It's interesting to think about uh, just 
Um, at, there were points in not too recent past where we were trying to export democracy. Right. Um, and then now some of these lessons about democracy, we need to make sure we're applying back home. I think, I think the just approach to your research is really interesting to think about how poor uh, new formed uh, maybe constitutional democracies function. I mean, this would have been really useful for us as we tried to spread democracy when we were trying to do that, right? Because we have right. some really... Um, uh, clear events of us trying to do that and not going so well. Right. Um, and, right. you know, the classic example, and one of the first I learned about was from our uh, former Dean, Ryan Crocker, and some of the ways in which we tried to do or didn't try to do state building in Iraq. But this stuff has real, uh, your these questions have real impacts for not just what it means for our own democracy, but how other countries implement it, how they grow into a full-functioning democracy, mm-hmm. how they go about protecting their minority rights in a constitutional democracy. And these are some really, I think, important questions. Right. Um, so that's been one of the most fun things so far about doing these interviews is finding out what colleagues are doing. Yeah. Uh, and so it was really cool to see some of your work. So what, have you, what questions have you more specifically looked at? Sure. What aspects of improving democracy or thinking about democracy. I mean, I know you're uh, an empiricist, so you use some, you use data to test hypotheses. Mm-hmm. So how do you, when in your research, um, how have you thought about democracy and then what variables have you used to see how they influence democracy? Sure. So there's a couple of constraints to full-fledged functioning democracy that I find are prevalent in particularly low-income and uh, new democracies. And um, I'll enumerate those, and then I'll talk about how I've done some research to address them. So a big constraint is the lack of information. So if voters are expected to make informed decisions about the candidates that are presenting in an an election, they have to be informed about what those candidates uh, are doing, how they're different from one another, and also how those candidates are doing once in office. And we know that information asymmetries or the candidates or parties having a lot more information than the voters is a big problem. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's purposeful, that candidates and politicians like for uh, that asymmetry to exist so that they can do more of what they want and less of what the voters want. So that's constraint number one. And that's mostly what I'll be talking about um, in the research that that I've done. Another constraint is that people still feel... Uh, People have very strong informal networks that uh, they rely on for getting credit, getting loans, um, getting, you know, help with health concerns or or schooling, um, just everyday life because the state has been absent for, Mm. you know, Mm -hmm. millennia. So they have to rely on each other. And so these very strong social informal bonds form and we can't ignore those when we start to think about having a formal system of governance put on top of that. So what happens generally is that people start to rely on, even when democracy comes, people start to rely on their informal networks to, um, to understand what's best for them in the electoral context. And so you start getting people voting along these um, informal lines, we often call them patron-client relationships, that people are relying on patrons um, for access to health care and goods in exchange for protection. Uh, but that means that patrons can also influence who you vote for. Mm-hmm. And instead of voting along a programmatic line, like um, should there be more or less redistribution in this country, that we see most people voting along these 
informal um, lines such as who who is my patron or within my ethnic group who is the the leader that I should be relying on because I have to continue to rely on them to survive in this um, in this very low income context. So that's another constraint that um, often. Uh, democratic cleavages in the West are along ideological uh, or programmatic lines, such as how much uh, taxes should be um, implemented, or um, whether it's a big government or small government, um, and what else, you know, th things, you mm -hmm. know, how charter school versus not. Yeah. Um, how but much rely on the private sector versus when government should provide things. Exactly. Relatively loose immigration laws, relatively tight immigration laws. Exactly. But in most of the, in most of the campaigns that you see um, in these new democracies, those just aren't the, the debates on the table. Um, it's, it's, when you look at most candidates, they look almost exactly the same on these ideological issues. They're they're all spouting the same things about um, how they're going to develop and how they're not going to be corrupt. Um, and then what what makes someone vote for one over the other is often these informal ties to their leaders. So the, the which I think this comes up. I, actually, I know it does because I looked at the papers. But <laughs> this has a this has a lot to do then with limits of access to information that you may have based on time or quality information or whatever, what's available to mm -hmm. you, and also what groups you identify with. I mean, these mm -hmm. informal networks, I imagine, are built a large part around how you, your own social identity and how you view yourself. Mm -hmm. And some of these common uh, ones that we might think of that, that you mentioned of, that you mentioned were, you know, things like your ethnicity, Things like maybe um, the class of people you're mm -hmm. a part of, mm -hmm. all of those things. So in these, so in these developing democracies and low-income places, it's often the case that the what's really being discussed or debated isn't really the policy proposals. Right. They're often very similar and very like claiming to be not corrupt and these kind of broad strokes. Mm -hmm. But the way they appeal to people is appealing to their social identities or their culture or some identifying characteristics about them and their networks. Right, right. And that's not, you know, it's not stupid. That's not, <laughs> yeah, yeah. People are not irrational. Yeah, yeah. This is almost always right. the best strategy that, that these voters have, that this is the best way that they can guarantee themselves at least something. And that a lot of times they're able to hold these uh, patrons accountable to something to provide maybe not to providing them with universal health care, but at least to providing their village with some wells or um, some locally excludable targeted goods that they get because they voted in large part for their patron and the neighboring village didn't. Mm -hmm. So it's it's a smart strategy mm -hmm. for yeah. voters. And there's there's been um, one researcher who did uh, who made a really salient point about why we see so much of this um, this strategy going on in new democracies, and it's because. When, when you think about it, why do we vote? Why, why do we trust our parties when they make programmatic promises? When they say, when we get into office, we're going to start implementing better immigration policies, better um, tax policies. It's because they have a track History, record. Yeah, they yeah. have a reputation. Mm -hmm. And they also have a party. Yeah. And the party is going to discipline them. So in new democracies, there are A, no parties. There's not a history of parties when you move from an mm -hmm. autocratic autocratic state to to a not autocratic state there aren't those organizations already in place and also there are no reputations nobody can mm -hmm. say well look i have this credible history of of 
you know, following through on my promises. So this is about all that voters can hold leaders accountable to in, in new democracies. So a big question then is, how does it shift? Yeah. How does it shift to a, um, to a more programmatic, uh, democratic? And, and I guess one of the ways of thinking about that is what you've, at least some of the questions that you asked, uh, that you asked, which is, if we can't really do a whole lot about these informal networks, maybe we can do something about the information piece mm -hmm, of this. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and so tell me a little bit about what you found um, with what we can, or what has been done, or some of the experiments to improve accountability of the elected officials based on information, uh, since right. the informal network is going to be a little harder, I think, to invade, <laughs> or to, to have, right. make to any changes. Right, like, yeah. to mm -hmm. change, yep, yep, especially because they're providing people with something that yep. we can't provide a substitute for, unless the state all of a sudden grows another right. arm and a leg, right? So, um, so information is manipulable, um, but it's especially useful when it's true, <laughs> right? And it's yeah. not... Um, it's neither, I love that categorization of information. It's neither a necessary nor a sufficient condition, but it does help if it's true. And so it's not, I mean, there have been some hypothetical information experiments that people have done in these countries to see what if there were a candidate that were really high performing, would people vote for them? And the answer is usually yes. But when you're doing a, a, a field experiment or, or um, trying to manipulate something in the real world, introducing false information is not ethical, but it also probably isn't going to have the impact you're hoping because voters know that you know they can see that their welfare has not improved yeah, yeah. as a result of that politician. So this is a hard, um, a hard thing to do well. Um, one of the one of the observations that I made early on um, in my field work um, in in my dissertation actually was that one information asymmetry that that was um, underexplored was not how well the politicians were doing in office. It felt like voters kind of knew what was going on. Maybe not. Maybe they didn't have the budgets um, to check whether they were being spent correctly, but they knew whether their life was better than it, mm -hmm. it was before. What I found the big information asymmetry was was what voters thought the government could do or was supposed to do. So imagine a, a country in which for a really long time you're living in a rural periphery and the state, the non-democratic state, completely ignores you because you're peasants and you don't have enough um, collective action to threaten um, sanctions on the government. You're not going to rebel anytime soon, so the government leaves you alone. So people expect that the government has nothing for them and is not going to do anything for them. Then the capital institutes a democracy and all of a sudden you have an elected official sitting at your outpost instead of a um, you know prefect of mm -hmm. the, of the um, old uh, autocratic regime. And now you're supposed to be holding this, this elected official accountable for something. But your expectation is that 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 politician is still not going to do anything mm -hmm. for you. Why would you all of a sudden expect, because of this so-called democracy in the capital, that, that they're going to start doing things on your behalf? So people are voting with the expectation that, that the politician is going to do almost nothing. So if they do anything, they're like, oh, great, they built a, a toilet, you know, and mm -hmm. now they're happy. Mm -hmm. And it's, again, it's not stupid. It's because this is what this is what their lived experience tells them is reasonable. So one of the, um, the information asymmetries I thought we could reasonably um, uh, close 
uh, fill that gap is to help voters understand what their new local um, councils, their democratically elected local councils, were capable of, what their budgets look like, what the roles and responsibilities of those local councils were, because this is information that they did not have. And it's also information that the local councils didn't want them to have, (laughs) because they were doing fine on their own. Being held less accountable. Exactly. So that was my, um, my first big foray into information experiments was to provide, a, in the form of a civic education program, information about just that, taking you know, actual budget numbers from local councils and saying this is what they, they have and what does that mean in real terms, how many wells could that build, how many schools, um, and then also giving people an idea about what other counselors could actually do with that. So there are two ways to raise expectations. You can either... Um, help people have a reference point, um, a benchmark against what other people are doing, um, or you could set a standard and say this is the standard and, and are people meeting the standard. And I think both were important in this case, setting the standard, this is what is they're able to do, but then also saying uh, there, are, there are neighboring council members who are doing a much better job than yours. And that actually, that kind of competitive spirit did a lot to, to activate voters' imaginations and mm-hmm. um, to see what you know, yeah, it is feasible in this context to have higher expectations of our elected officials. So that that's um, that program actually worked um, to change the way that the voters thought about disciplining politicians. They were willing to sanction them for for more misbehavior than they had been before, and they also participated more in um, town hall meetings following the um, the civic education program. This, this is, was in Mali. I forgot to say <laughs> the country. This is so cool. So I have to. I mean. Uh, not to to just be uh, heaping praise on you, but I really like the instances where you take some economic assumptions and you're introducing some of the best of what we know about psychology or behavioral economics mm-hmm. and actually testing it out based on what we expect people's incentives to be, taking these known kind of irrational or known biased ways of thinking about things. And so I really like this tapping into what people should expect and then deviations from that helping improve what their expectations are from democracy. I think that's really cool. Um, what, across the two, setting the standard and the reference point, um, you said one thing that really activated the, 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 the respondents was knowing that the people near and near communities had been performing in a certain way. So is the reference point stronger? Uh, is the effect for the reference point stronger? I think benchmarking, than- yeah, or yardstick voting when mm-hmm. you're comparing to what else is going on elsewhere. I think that is a very strong um, incentive, in part because it's one thing to say this is possible um, and this is the standard, but it's another thing to say it's actually happened somewhere else that looks like your community. That's really cool. So I want to, just to keep on moving uh, for the purposes of time, you have a a newer paper out that does some of this as well, um, takes these psychological concepts and uh, looks at them in this realm. And this one's also an international case to the U.S. And it it deals with the information question again Mm -hmm. and motivated reasoning. Okay, so before we get to that question, I'm going to set up the, the project because that the motivated reasoning um, finding was a bit of a um, surprise for us. We okay. didn't we didn't set out to find that particular um, finding. We we were excited when we were able to say something interesting uh, along those lines. But the the project 
um, was trying to take the the some of the intuitions from this Molly piece um, and and push it a little further. So so one question that we that I posed earlier on in our conversation is how do um, voters that, that tend to vote along clientelistic lines switch to voting along more programmatic lines? And that, that was one of the questions we were asking in this piece. So we took it to a country where we know um, voters do vote along clientelistic lines, and that is, um, that is Benin. So Benin has been described as a very clientelistic democracy, and a lot of people use their ethnic identity as a sort of signal for which is the in-group I should be electing to office. Mm -hmm. And um, we were doing this right before a legislative election, and the legislature is interesting because they are not empowered to make targeted uh, decisions to benefit just their constituencies. The legislature in Benin is only empowered to make national laws. And so anything that they do for their constituency only is pretty much informal and on that, like, this is not your, your, um, this is not among your formal responsibilities, but they still do that. They uh -huh. still do that because that's the way that, that these institutions tend to work de facto, even though that's not how they're supposed to work de jure. So we thought that was an interesting opportunity to separate out the legislators who were doing their de jure job better, which is showing up at the legislator, legislature, passing laws, going to their committees, um, being active members of the plenary sessions, um, rather than those legislators who were instead, you know, you know, not going to, to the plenary sessions and instead going back to their, their home communities and promising a bunch of stuff, stuff that would probably be from money that was maybe illegally or corruptly attained mm -hmm. um, because that's how this stuff works. You, you, you get into legislature, so you have access to this um, big pot of money and then you use it through these, um, you know, sort of informal channels to benefit your constituents. So we, we constructed an information index, like a scorecard essentially, about how different incumbent legislators had been doing on our legislative performance index, which accounts for this, you know, attendance, uh, passing laws, mm -hmm. active questioning, etc. And we provided this information to, um, to voters right before the legislative elections. And our hypothesis was that if the going thing to do is to vote along clientelistic lines, this kind of information should make no impact on people's voting decisions because they don't, they know that that's not what's going to benefit them in the long term. They know that what's going to benefit them is having a, a highly active clientelistic legislator, not having a high performing uh, legislative legislator, right? So we thought, what is there any way that a voter might say, actually, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go ahead and vote for that high-performing legislative legislator instead? And we thought, under these conditions, it might be worth it. Under the conditions that, A, they see the value of a high-performing legislator. They see that, oh, our legislature has actually been talking about this, this um, national health insurance policy for a long time, but they haven't gotten it passed. Why? Because nobody's asking them where it's gone. Um, so introducing, you know, true information about what could be done if legislators did a better job. And two, if enough of the constituency all shifted to vote along those lines, because if you're the only little community or you're the only voter to shift to voting along those lines, not only are you not going to get your guy elected, but you'll probably be punished 
by the guy who does get elected, who's voting, who got elected along finalists. Working in some game theory. I so like this, this is a yeah. coordination game. Yeah. You only want to do it if there's another <clears throat> enough other people doing it. So in this um, project, we randomized both whether the individuals were getting information about um, this, we, we called it salience, whether or not legislative uh, performance was salient for your well-being. But more importantly, we randomized the dosage. How high a proportion of your constituency is getting this information? So in some communities, we said, you are the only village in this constituency that's getting this information. But in other constituencies, we said, you are among a quarter of all villages in this constituency who's getting this information. And that was true. Mm -hmm. And we found, lo and behold, that this information did not change behavior in the low dosage places, but it did change behavior in the high dosage places. It encouraged people to vote um, for the high-performing legislators in the Honor Legislative Index. So it seemed to shift not only people's priors about their performance, but also people's priors about which dimension they should be voting on. Mm -hmm. No longer the clientelistic dimension, but the uh, legislative performance. So it activates a different frame for making the decision. But also it gives them the assurance that enough other people are going to do it so they won't be punished. So they won't be punished and that they have a chance of getting this guy in office. So it's, so it's really not framing. It's it's, it's a right. rational expectation that that moving this way is going to improve. Your yeah, it's all about second order beliefs about yeah. who else is going to do it. Because if not enough people do it, it's not Why worth bother? It. Yeah. Yeah. So that was the first question that we were yeah. asking in that project and, and one that I was excited about because I think that, it, well, that relates to some of my new work, which is about why in these low-income um, democracies uh, are states not developing capacity more quickly? And I think that state capacity is a big problem for the transition to programmatic politics because people are not going to value universalistic programs if the state is incapable of providing them. Yeah. And so we see these weak states um, that, that A, are weak, but B, do not seem to be investing in growing their capacity quickly. And one possibility is that they do not wish to invest in growing their capacity quickly because that's going to mobilize voters who have a lot more demands to make on them. And, you know, I've been thinking about why this may not have applied to older democracies such as our own. And this goes back to um, early literature, canonical literature in political science, which talks about what motivated states to invest in their fiscal and bureaucratic capacity. And that was war. Right. So in Europe, why did states form, Tilly says, because they, they want to be able to protect themselves from their neighbors or have Im mm -hmm. imperial um, goals. And so they need to invest in uh, fiscal capacity so that they can extract revenue in order to build their armies. They need to invest in um, state capacity so that they can provide services like education and health so that they have a healthy, um, literate army that's able to wage war better than the next guy. And they can extract manpower to build an army. Exactly. Exactly. So these are all reasons that early states um, in the West and, and us as well uh, invested in fiscal and bureaucratic capacity that 
had nothing to do with or might have overcome these disincentives that, that you might face in a democracy today. But those incentives are absent in all young democracies today as we live in an international system that, that doesn't permit um, states uh, interstate war. Or, or, or at least you know, some states are yeah. not permitted to engage yeah. in interstate war. Man, what a potential perverse impact of lowering uh, interstate <laughs> violence well, <laughs> is the inability to grow functioning state capacity within yeah. constitutional democracies. There's been some really interesting new work yeah. that's shown that even intrastate conflict has influenced local variation in fiscal capacity and bureaucratic capacity. So that when there there was more intrastate conflict in, in new state formation, those places were the ones that ended up being ahead of the curve uh, in terms of, of fiscal capacity. state capacity. Yeah. When did the United States start to collect an income tax? Yeah. Briefly, during the Civil War. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and then all the expansion and social programs right around World War Two. I mean, well, we had the, the, right. We, we put in another income tax during World War One, mm -hmm. and it was declared unconstitutional. And you had to have a constitutional amendment to have a, a federal income tax. But it, it comes from war. It comes from war making. Yeah. So where does this take us with some of your? Uh, yeah, some of the newest work. So one of the um, kind of side projects or. or um, the findings that uh, additional findings we had from this work in Benin is the one about ethnicity. So we we um, thought that ethnicity would have an effect on the way that the information was going to um, lead to differential voting behavior, and we'd proposed some some ways in which that might work. And people have thought for a long time that ethnicity would influence people's take up of information, but that could be consistent with a bunch of different. Um, theories about how identity affects information, and the one that we found was the mo was the best match for what actually happened in our setting is is called motivated reasoning. So the way that this works is, um, or the the way that our uh, the way that our experiment turned out is that people were getting information about their incumbent, and just because of natural variation in the population, sometimes that incumbent was a co-ethnic, and sometimes that um, that incumbent was a non-co-ethnic of the individual. And we found that among the individuals who are co-ethnics, who received positive information, a positive legislative information about their incumbent, they reacted to the information and they acted differently than the people in the control group who did not, than the, the co-ethnics of the people in the control group um, who did not get that information. So information worked when it was positive um, about a co-ethnic, and that and that information is about about performance, exactly. not about delivering the goods. Exactly, that was about how often you were in legislature. So you were potentially um, already primed to think favorably about this person. So hearing favorable information makes you act a certain way, and that the reverse was true as well. So about a, so when you got negative information about a non-co-ethnic, negative performance information about a non-co-ethnic, you were less likely to vote for that incumbent than um, the counterfactual person in the control group. However, if you're in a co-ethnic and you get negative legislative performance information, you are not any different than the people who did not get those uh, that information. So information in our story only worked when 
the information was consistent with the person's social identity, when the social identity of the person already led them to think favorably or unfavorably about the incumbent politician. And um, it turns out that the psychology literature has a word for that, and that that's motivated reasoning. And the American politics literature has been talking about um, partisan motivated reasoning for a long time, in which, you know, some, we, you also might have heard it, uh, referred to as confirmation bias, but something about your priors um, will lead you to take up or not take up information differentially. But However, in, in American politics, would that motivation be your partisan leaning as opposed to, say, your ethnic affiliation? Yes, and that that but that is where I think the work that I've been doing in Africa has a really interesting has really interesting lessons for what's going on in the U.S. So the a, a more a deeper um, way of thinking about motivated reasoning and what what it's actually doing psychologically is that if you think about an individual receiving some information, they might have two goals in taking up that information. One goal is to maximize the accuracy with which they know the thing that that information is about. So we want to be accurate. That makes us feel good to have true true knowledge. The second is that we want to maximize our our social identity. Our, we want to make ourselves feel good, and that, that's much more of an emotional reaction. But we all have um, social identities that uh, you know hit very close to home, and when they're activated, or when you say something positive about that identity, you feel good, and when you say something negative about that identity, you feel bad. So there are two things that are pushing sometimes in opposite directions when you receive information, and sometimes they're aligned and that's the case of getting good and good legislative performance information about co-ethnic is that the those two goals are aligned and so you're going to do the thing that that the information implies or you're going to take up that information but sometimes they're not aligned when you get um, information about your co-partisan that um, it, it says something negative about what that co-partisan did that makes you feel bad so you may or may not take it up and whether or not you do has to do with how strong your attachment is to that social identity, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So the way that we've been talking about partisan motivated reasoning in the U.S., partisanship was thought of as this, this um, difference in ideology, that, that people who are on the right ha tend to have more conservative beliefs, they like small government, they want lower taxes, etc. People on the left tend to like the opposite. But what we're seeing in, in the U.S. today is a detachment of these issues and ideologies from the social partisan identification. And there was this great piece um, by Liliana Mason in um, AGPS in the last few years where she looked at the... That's, that's the American Journal of Political Science. <laughs> where she looked at um, the ANES, the American National Election Survey, mm -hmm. um, and showed that... She, in fact, there had been a debate in the literature, is America becoming more or less polarized? And there was a debate. People said more, some people said less, and she said, well, that's because we're talking about two different kinds of polarization. There is social partisan polarization, and there is issue polarization. And she said, America has never been more unified on issues. People's ideas about issues have never been more moderated are close together on both sides of the aisle. By contrast, people have never been more socially polarized. And so this is where I start to think that thinking about your social or ethnic identity 
as doing a lot of work in moderating your information take up, it really applies to what's going on in the U.S. right now because people are thinking not necessarily about what the candidates are espousing in terms of their ideology. They're thinking about how well that candidate <coughs> is performing as a member of one's tribe. And we have become very tribal. And um, you know, figuring out a way to uh, tamp down the, the amount of work that that social identification is doing in favor of the the work that the accuracy goal is doing, I think, is is one hope for, um, you know, for moderating our, our political beliefs and discussions. So when you were saying that, I, w I was um, chuckling to myself that what you should call it is the Facebook effect. Mm. I was thinking, I was thinking, fake news, the fake, fake news. news effect. What I think is what's nuanced about it, from what I noticed in my own interactions, talking about public issues on Facebook, is that everyone. And, and in some ways, myself included, do exactly that. Um, and, and what I mean by that, it's it's not the co-ethnicity as much as it is the co-party or mm -hmm. the co-tribe, however mm -hmm. you defined it. Mm -hmm. And when something positive comes out of the that represents your tribe, and there's some evidence for something positive, people post that, right? And then when there's something negative about the other side, the other tribe, mm -hmm. people post that. Mm -hmm. What you see very little of in that sphere is people posting negative information about their tribe or positive things about the other tribe. It actually comes up in comments when people are having back and forth these conversations. You never do this. You never say anything bad about this side. Mm -hmm. And so it was just interesting to me as you were laying out the, <clears throat> the kind of theoretical reasoning behind it that that from just anecdotally yeah. definitely plays out in – the Facebook sphere, and I bet that is a, I'm sure maybe people are already looking at that, but that would be a really interesting application of looking at where people have self-identified what their tribes are, and then the types of things that they post, I'm sure you would be able to see fit this same yeah. same structure, you would imagine. Yeah. And that's why I started <clears throat> getting more interested in what was going on in, in our own politics, is because I was writing this paper in 2016 while I was listening to... Uh, the election campaigns and the run-up to the presidential elections, and I, well, I was guilty of doing mm -hmm. this exact same thing, and noticing it was helpful. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the, you know, one one project that I I haven't worked on yet, but we're proposing to do with the same team of people in in Benin is to think about things that might help overcome this type of um, social partisan motivated reasoning and one of the proposed ways is to just make people aware of it because if you notice yourself doing it you might be more open to changing that behavior that might not be strong enough that's been found to work in other situations where psychological biases have um, effects on behavior when you make people aware of their psychological biases sometimes mm -hmm. they can have less of an effect but other other types of ideas we've had is um priming cross-cutting issues. Um, so, for instance, in, in other work, a colleague of mine has done work on um, how to how to moderate the... the there's also co-ethnic... differential co-ethnic trust in, in Africa that, that people tend to trust their co-ethnics more than they would trust a non-co-ethnic. And a colleague of mine, Amanda Robinson, has done work on what may mitigate that benefit that co-ethnics have in... in um, you know, and working with other co-ethnics. And she found that priming nationalism was helpful so that if um, you 
were primed, even with something as simple as a flag or a conversation about your national hymn prior to making an interaction with a non-coethnic, that you were more likely to trust them because you were thinking more about the thing that united you than the thing that divided you. So um, that's... So, so Americans, before they go in to the voting booth, should listen to the national anthem. We should have the national anthem playing on loop at every polling place. This is a challenge for us in, um, in that patriotism has been made, has been co-opted by one of the parties as, as more of a partisan issue. So it's hard to think about things that would be neutral and mm -hmm. um, you know, national sports, the Olympics. Flag? The flag? Should the flag, should yeah. you have the flag in every voting booth? In other words, when you go in, you see the flag before you vote. <clears throat> well, it depends on if the flag has also been co-opted. Yeah, well, I mean, that would be a interesting, <laughs> we have, that would yeah. be an interesting discussion in American politics. Has the flag been co-opted in Benin? I don't know enough about that country's flag. I do know about Mali's flag. How about Mali? Um, which has a very strong message about uh, unity, but it also has a message about faith. Mm. And so one of one of the, um, what is it called? Their national motto is, mm. is one faith, one people, one faith, and something mm. else. Um, and so that faith is Islam. Islam. And 95% yeah. of the population is Muslim, but for that 5%, yeah. you know? <laughs> yeah. They're yeah. um, saying, how about two faiths? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it would be good to, thank you so much, um, for sharing some of your work with us. Uh, it was fun to read through it and fun to, uh, I've been reading some stuff myself on uh, Economics for the Common Good by uh, Jean Tirole. And in it, <clears throat> he lays out exactly some of the new approaches to doing the new types of questions economics is interested in. And two of the main themes he identified were information theory and game theory. Mm -hmm. And so you applied both of them and it was really cool to see um, the way in which you are, you know, applying some of these information concepts and behavioral concepts to um, some of these questions. So thanks. Uh, thanks for sharing it with us. Yeah. Um, Greg, you want to broaden us out and we'll shift to just a broader discussion. It is the day following politics, uh, following politics, following the uh, another day following politics. It is the day after election here in the U.S., the 2018 midterms. And we are talking about democracy. So, yeah, we'll take a little pause and we'll be right back. Welcome back. Instead of giving uh, a bunch of hot takes, which are, are based largely on, you know, what we read in the newspaper this morning or, or heard on the radio, I thought it might be more interesting to try to play out some of the themes that Jessica, Jessica's work uh, led us to discuss in the, in the first segment and talk about democratic decay. Uh, her work is on, on, is on emerging democracies, as it were, but we've also <clears throat> seen uh, quite a bit of, of, of democratic reversion. Uh, we just had Madeleine Albright here at the school yesterday the, on election day uh, talking about her work, her new book on, on fascism, a warning in which she gives a number of uh, accessible case studies of countries that we thought were on a democratic trajectory. Turkey, Hungary, a bunch of other places that have a if you will, reverted or moved toward a, in a more authoritarian way. 
And Jessica, I know that you're teaching a, a, a capstone course, which is our uh, second year, second semester course for, for our uh, master's in international affairs students, uh, in which they do a project for a real world client uh, on, uh, on issues of democratic decay. How does, how does the democratic de decay issue, how did it come out of the work you were doing? Sure, thanks. So um, not coincidentally, after the 2016 elections, a bunch of political scientists, mostly um, young professors, got together and decided that they wanted to teach a new course called Democratic Erosion to their students. And the reason for this is that democratic erosion is not, or democratic decay, democratic backsliding, mm -hmm. it's called by a number of different names, is not something that we as uh, young professors were educated about very well in our own training. Uh, as PhD students, and, and that's partly because this is a relatively new phenomenon. So when we talk about uh, democratic transitions in and out of democracy, we usually think about coups or civil wars um, or, or quick transitions from one to the other, from one regime type to the other. But this this um, new trend that we're seeing a lot of in some of the cases that, that are in um, Madeleine Albright's book uh, are these examples where Democrats who were elected to government start to undermine their own democratic institutions from the inside. And this is thought to be a phenomenon that's about one or two decades old. And so we don't know a whole lot about it. And, and we thought that we should, given that we were unsure about whether some of what was going on in our own country were signs of this very phenomenon. Um, so these professors got together and said, let's, let's make a course about that, not only to teach our students something that's quite salient in today's um, world and uh, national politics, but also to teach ourselves. And um, this course is now a collaborative course being taught by over 20 universities in the U.S. and abroad. Um, there's one being taught in the Philippines, actually. And yeah. One of, and one of the cases in Albright's book. <laughs> yeah. And we teach a unified syllabus um, that is all online at Democratic erosion.com if you want to go access the, the syllabus. And there's some really great blog posts. One of the things that unifies our course is that students from all over the country and the world now post uh, blogs on current events on, on the site. And um, we have some other things on there, such as the data that um, was generated by our capstone. So what I decided to do, instead of running this as a normal course, was to, to use this as an opportunity to reach out to the policy world and see if anything about democratic erosion might be interesting to policymakers. And, and of course it was. So um, the uh, uh, Democracy, right, Human Rights, and Governance Center at USAID, uh, essentially their, their governance um, division, has been interested in this phenomenon for, for many years. And, and, and USAID is the United States Agency for International Development that gives out the foreign aid that the U.S. gives out. Thanks. Yeah. So um, we asked them whether they would like us to do some policy research on this topic, and they were really excited. They said one of the things that was lacking was not theorizing about how and when this happens, but looking at actual data to better understand what it looks like and whether it looks different when it's done in Africa versus when it's done in Western and, and Eastern Europe. So, so indicators of decay. Yes, mm. um, both precursors to decay mm. and indicators of decay mm. itself and whether the <clears throat> phenomenon looks different and whether, um, whether it happens differently in different places. And so we use, this is a very cool advantage of having all of these uh, courses being taught. We use case studies being written by the students, by hundreds of students in these courses across the country and in the Philippines. The Filipino 
those students were actually the best case writers. <laughs> That's awesome. awesome. <laughs> Nothing like living through it. <laughs> um, they the they wrote uh, narrative case studies about different cases of erosion, and uh, our students at the Bush School coded those case studies to create an event data set. So we have this great data set with uh, about a thousand events that says per each country, per each year, whether there was some indicator of erosion. For instance, whether um, the president abolished term limits or threw some of the opposition party members in jail or tamped down on um, the media. Um, and these, these now are in a data set coded by country and year for, um, for researchers or policymakers to exploit. And now that data is all on line on that website I mentioned earlier. And this year we have another capstone in which we're going to uh, have our students use those data to write policy memos um, that try to better understand what the data can tell us about the patterns of democratic erosion across the world. Um, so what are the lessons for the U.S.? Um, well, one of the, the biggest um, precursors of democratic erosion is polarization. And my favorite explanation about how polarization leads to democratic erosion is by Millen Spolik, who's a, a Yale professor who actually will be visiting uh, Texas A&M on Friday, um, to talk about this new work. So his theory is that what polarization does is it makes incumbents of, or sorry, co-partisans of the current um, government fear the opposition so much that they're willing to endure a lot more misbehavior by that incumbent government. So they know that the government is undermining democratic institutions. It's not that, the, that it's doing it unwittingly, that they know, but they're willing to make that sacrifice to the norms of uh, their democracy or the democratic institutions itself because they are so afraid of what would happen to them if the other tribe took the reins. And this goes back to what we know about um, how to make a stable democracy, which is to lower the stakes. That when the stakes get too high, that it, the opposition is going to come in and take them or the, those in power are going to try to stay there by any means necessary. And I think that makes a lot of sense that, you know, it, it goes against one of the things Madeleine Albright said yesterday. She quoted Mussolini, in fact, who said, if you pluck a chicken feather, feather at, at a time. time, you know, that's, that's how you get um, fascism, yeah. essentially. But give, given what we know about polarization, I'm not sure that, that this chicken is being plucked unwittingly. <laughs> I think that people know, people see that... The president in, in the U.S., for instance, is, ma is making attacks on the media. They know that that's happening, and I think they just don't care. Or they care more about their tribe holding on to right. power. It's not that they don't care necessarily. It's they care more about something else. Right. right? I mean, if we look at the, at the quintessential issue of polarization in American history, right? yep. people in slave states were unwilling to respect the election of uh, a president who was, you know, vocally and committed to an anti-slavery right. uh, uh, platform, and thus they left the union and were willing to fight about it. And that's that's raising the stakes <clears throat> of politics very high. But how? I wonder how you lower the stakes of politics because if you want the state to do more, and and we think state capacity is a good thing. 
we, we wish these, these new democracies that you're studying in Africa had, had greater state capacity so they could provide more to their citizens, not on the basis of patronage or, or, or corruption, but on the basis of a programmatic commitment to health care and education and all those things. Doesn't that raise the stakes of politics? Well, I think that one of the things people are afraid of is their their whole world changing. And, and that comes with and from the espousal of fear. And, you know, the things that, that are being espoused that make people afraid, I think in many cases are not true. Uh, right. That people's entire worlds are not going to be turned on their head if some new immigrants come into the country. Right. So people people don't get afraid about marginal economic improvements, I right? I think so. That 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 you split the difference on, right? More taxes, less taxes. Universal health care versus some kind of employer yeah. base that maybe the government then helps you with, and if you're old, you get Medicaid. Mm -hmm. So the things that really polarize you are identity issues. Absolutely. So state capacity is is kind of irrelevant to some of those identity issues. I think so. Which makes sense, right? We've been dealing with the identity issues as humans a lot longer than we've been able to internalize intuitions about the modern state. I mean, it's sure. not, <clears throat> and I think the, the, this is another kind of game theory problem, I think, right? It's in both, once we've started going down this path, it's in both parties' interest to, uh, to be bad performers because you have to, you have to believe that you're, the other side is going to be good performers if you choose to be good, former, good, good performers. And so, and particularly when the evidence appears to be that being bad performers works. Well, when you mean bad performers, you don't mean bad in delivering oh, the goods. Yeah. I mean, you mean bad, fear. You mean, you mean uh, violating the, the norms of democratic debate. Yes. Right. So there's a, a Weingast paper on exactly this in 1990 about democracy in a divided society, where he says that if, if, if society is divided, the only way to get stable democracy is if the leader transgresses on the other side, you commit to hold the leader accountable because it's very easy for the leader to take sides and divide mm. and conquer. And so there has to be some norm that everybody commits to say, I'm going to sanction the leader with you, even, even if, if they're transgressing the, against you. Even if the leader is my guy. Yeah. Right. Right. And this is presumably what the con what you have constitutions for. Right. Mm -hmm. But no constitution works without some norms that are not written down in the document, but some understanding about, about how we're going to play the game. Right. And I wonder, I mean, one of the things that old political scientists, even older than me, because I'm, I'm ancient, but people like who were writing in the 50s and 60s, they bemoan the fact that America didn't have ideological parties, right? We had liberal Republicans and conservative Republicans, and we had <clears throat> liberal Democrats, but we also had the whole South was Democratic, and they were pretty conservative, and, and uh, the system down there was based on, on racial segregation and, and, and suppressing African-American participation. So you had, you had these, each party was a, co a strange coalition, mm -hmm. and a lot of political scientists said, well, that's bad, because you can't really hold the parties accountable, because they don't have a real program. Now we're actually getting ideological parties in the United States. And, and it, the stakes, people seem to believe that the stakes of politics have increased. And so the polarization increases 
and you get the greater risk of democratic decay. Uh, I don't know how far, I, I think people would differ on how far down the road we are on that, on the road to democratic decay. But we know from the kinds of cases that Jessica's classes are looking at and other scholars, I mean, you know, the, the, the big book, I guess, on this recently was Levitsky and, and Ziblatt, right? Mm -hmm. The two Harvard guys. Mm -hmm. and, and there's some very accessible things that Levitsky and Ziblatt have written from, from the research they've done. So people can just you know, you know, Google Ziblatt. We'll put it up on the, on the, on the page as well. Uh, but I, I think that, that that is the question for those of us who care about American politics mm -hmm. is how, how, how far down the road have we gone? Are we exact, are, are people who, who don't like Donald Trump exaggerating this because we don't like Donald Trump or what are the indicators? <clears throat> and that, I mean, we're not going to solve that today. That's for sure. But that to me, I think is, is, is the serious question. Yeah. Another resource that's interesting to look at is called Bright Line Watch. And you can also Google that. Mm -hmm. It's a survey by political scientists of political scientists yeah. about these questions that have been done in waves every few months little, since the election of Trump. Yeah, it's a little, it, it, it's, it's a little incestuous political scientists yeah. polling political scientists. But one scientists. of the things I like that they've done is they've separated two, um, two dimensions. The dimensions of, um, is this a threat to democracy? So how, like how much has Trump, um, Right. performed well or poorly right. on this dimension and how important is that dimension, dimension. Right. so it turns out that trump is performing really poorly on a lot of things that political scientists think are not the highest priority to a sound democracy but he has not started to um to attack some of those dimensions that are are more foundational to a democracy and so i think that's where we need to keep our eye is mm -hmm. once we start seeing those things it's it's going to be a lot uh, a lot more problematic. So do do you get polled by Brightline Watch? Mm -hmm. So do I. So do I. We all do. So all three of us do. Uh oh, uh oh. So so there might be some endogeneity problem with us discussing the the results of this since we all contribute to it. <laughs> it is interesting. I you know I tried to to as it's happening in real time and giving all the conversations around it. It does. Sometimes it's hard to see how much of it is rhetoric and how much the rhetoric affect the norms and how much of it is um, more kind of long lasting effects mm -hmm. because the norms have changed. Mm -hmm. um, one of the interesting cases, just to, to mention one, because it's the state I'm from, is Georgia and talking about whether or not to be you know, concerned about democratic erosion. And here you had all these attempts and at uh, suppressing voter turnout and the the person running for office was also the person running the elections as the secretary of state mm -hmm. um and you know that those types of things are like seem to be like real uh advances on disrupting checks of democratic control like mm -hmm. the person running the election is also the person uh, running for, for office. office and there are not not limited accusations a lot of accusations about voter suppression attempts to the degree to which, you know, the court stepped in and said, you have to quit doing this. And so there are, it's interesting to see it, think, to think about at the national level, what are the concerns and how, how concerning are they? But even playing out, when you start looking at the states, I think you really do see some evidence for some of these things at the state level, maybe because there's less accountability or we're paying less attention 
but it does seem like things uh, at the state level, I mean, and you saw them in several governor's races, yeah. are really exemplifying what we're seeing at the federal level without less kind of oversight and accountability. I think. Although in, in Pennsylvania, you got the Supreme Court to overturn the very gerrymandered districts right. there. Mm -hmm. And, that, and that, was, that was the state Supreme Court. <laughs> exactly. Very interesting there. The state Supreme Court of Pennsylvania actually mandated a redrawing of the districts, which were heavily gerrymandered uh, in, in favor of the Republicans. But that wasn't federal. It wasn't based on federal 14th Amendment equal protection or anything like that. It was based on specific clauses of the Pennsylvania state constitution, which is interesting. This has kind of segued us into hot takes, and we don't have time for yeah, we don't have We don't have time for so that. So I, I think what we have to do is, is thank Jessica for this very interesting conversation. And maybe... Justin, you and me at some point in the next day or two, and, and maybe we can get Ann Bowman, who joined us last week, to sit down and, and, and do the hot takes on, on the election, and maybe we can get two postings out of this week's. That'd be great. That'll give us another day or two for news to come. What was that? Yes, please yeah, do. Yeah, please. Jessica, the last <laughs> word is yours. So one of the things I've learned from this class, uh, teaching this class and, and studying this stuff, is the importance of moderation in politics and the importance of talking to people who you don't agree with, because I think it limits this Facebook effect you were talking about earlier. It exposes you to new ideas that you might not have access to otherwise, and it forces you to base your own ideas in, in fact. It's much harder to defend yourself to someone who disagrees with you than to someone who agrees with you. And I think we should all challenge ourselves to talk to people who we don't agree with and to surround ourselves by a diversity of views. And that's easier to do here in Texas than it is to do in a lot of other places. And that's one of the reasons I appreciate being here. And I can try to put this into practice. And happens to be one of the two things that uh, Madeleine Albright suggested as things you could do today. Um, one was to get, get out and run for office. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and another is to talk to people you don't agree with. So You're here. I completely second that. I think it's really crucial that we talk to one another. A great ending point. Thanks, yeah. everybody. Thank you. We'll be Thank back you. in your feeds shortly. Yep. Thanks, Jessica. Yep. Yeah.